Good morning. Our passage this morning will be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. If you want to go ahead and turn in your text to Matthew chapter 20, we'll be reading verses 29 through 34. And I'll start this morning by just reading the text. Matthew 20, 29 through 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they kept crying out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Father, we thank you so much for the Gospels. What a glorious thing to be able to meditate on the Son of God, and we're so thankful for that this morning. And we pray that you would exalt him in our hearts and in our minds this morning. And that we would not leave here the same person, but we would be mesmerized by the glory of our Redeemer. We pray, Lord, that you would shape and mold our hearts, that you would refine us, that you would purify us, our hearts, our intentions, our behavior, Lord, that it would glorify the Son of God in a manner which he rightly deserves. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Though I want to... Wish all the fathers here happy Father's Day. I do want to do that. The message this morning won't be primarily on that topic. I hope that doesn't disappoint everybody. Though there will be a little bit of connection in the end with our concluding thoughts. We'll kind of connect with Father's Day. The message I'm using or have been using in recent weeks and months um, have been sermons that I've done in the past. Uh, mainly because I lead such a busy life, and I want to do all that I can to love and help and support at this time as a church. This particular message that I'm doing this morning came from uh, a series that I shared with two other men as we rotated and preached through the Gospel of Matthew at Grace Bible Fellowship Church up in Republic, Washington. And it, it's such a blessing for me to do messages in a series that are progressive through a book of the Bible, going verse by verse and and maintaining the context as you go, uh, just allowing the Word of God to speak, and particularly when it's a gospel. Um, There's such a a, a blessing. There's, There's nothing like going through and, and studying the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Gospels are such a blessing. There's nothing better than focusing on him, and, and no one can help but stop and look at him in wonder and amazement if you're really paying attention to him as you go verse by verse through a Gospel. He is truly the glory and the fullness of God in bodily form. He is the amazing grace of God displayed in all its wonder that the most righteous son of God would literally take on human flesh 
and dwell down here with us. It's easy for us to think lightly of this sometimes, perhaps because we've, we've heard it so many times. Oh yeah, the incarnate Son of God. We stop, we stop thinking about how awesome that reality really is. More likely, though, it, in some ways, it's because our thinking ability is weak as we try to compli- uh, contemplate the infinite God. It's hard for us to even just wrap our mind around that. As they say in theological terms, we may apprehend who God is, but we will never comprehend him. We, we often think highly of our own insight, but we really are puny in our ability to understand how great our God is and how fantastic the sacrifice of Jesus Christ really was. For, for Jesus to take on flesh and come down here among human, uh, sinful humanity was such an enormous condescension for him. Or maybe putting it another way, It is incomprehensible how far Jesus descended from being in a high place to being in a low place. Jesus did not change in his divine nature. That didn't change. But he took upon himself a drastic change in position or circumstance when he united himself with human flesh. For us to be around truly sinful people, I mean genuinely depraved individuals, it's not that big of a sacrifice. Honestly. It might be uncomfortable for us, particularly if we love righteousness, but it's not that big of a difference. Humanity is is far more depraved than we give credit to ourselves for. We, We like to think that man is not truly all that bad, or he has potential for good, but, you know, as Jeremiah says... The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't even realize how wicked we really are before God. Many many express their disgust with the current state of Western society and all the wickedness, that the conduct that is going on around us, and rightly so. It's repulsive to us. It's, It's heartbreaking. A vast majority of humanity is spiritually, mentally, morally depraved, and they just simply need an opportunity to show it to you. Some here rub shoulders with people like that every day. Still, in comparing ourselves to really wicked people, it's easy to forget that we are human as well, and we are weak against a sinful flesh as well. Our sin can be very similar. It's only the grace of God that relieves our guilt and that motivates our heart towards repentance and and towards loving what is righteous. It's, It's the grace of God that does that. But for Jesus to set aside the fullness of his glory as God and all the benefits, all the benefits of his position and his person so that he could be here among us? I often said to my kids when they were growing up, when they were young, I would say that Jesus taking on humanity would be like us taking a flight to Calcutta, India, grabbing a straw and going drinking out of their sewer system. 
I, I used to tell my kids that. I, I off, you know, but even our best analogies like that come nowhere near demonstrating the extent of the humility and the humiliation that Christ took upon himself in taking on flesh and dwelling with us. Paul, Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2, and you've heard this many times, but it rings true. It's such a powerful passage that Jesus existed in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was not unwilling to let go of his position and his privileges. He was high, exalted, lifted up in a state of perfect blessedness in the presence of the Father, and he willingly let go and emptied himself, it says. And he didn't stop there. He went lower. He took on the form of a slave. Yes, a slave, the very one to whom all worship and service is rightly due, God our creator. The word that it uses there is slave. How could the very Son of God become a slave? But that is exactly the word that Paul uses. If, you, if that were not enough, he lowered himself even further and was born in the likeness of men. He took on our flesh. The Jews, if you remember in the Old Testament, the Jews were forbidden to use any earthly image to represent God because that was blasphemous and infinitely below God. And so it was degrading regarding the truth about who God was. It was totally unacceptable. But Jesus took human flesh. Being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming, uh, becoming obedient even to the point of death. And if that were not enough, the death he accepted was the death on a cross. And, and the death on the cross was legitimately the most painful, the most humiliating, and, and the most shameful way of dying at the time. So Matthew, in writing his gospel... We understand he had a primary agenda in reading his gospel. Each, each writer of a gospel had a primary audience and primary agenda. And Matthew's was to demonstrate that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that was spoken of through the Old Testament prophets. That was his intent. He's reading, writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Yet you can't help but see and wonder this Jesus and his perfect humility and love portrayed throughout the gospel. Jesus Christ is truly the love of God displayed in such glory. I agree that the love of God has often been abused. I, I believe that. Used to minimize God's righteous nature and even excuse the weightiness of man's sin. Yet, that pendulum has a tendency to swing in the opposite direction as well, and we must not let ourselves forget the magnificence of God's love towards sinful humanity. God's love and his righteousness work together in all their fullness at all times. It is a glorious perfection, a perfect harmony of all of God's attributes. They don't work independent of each other. All that glorious perfection resides also in the person of Christ. 
this perfect love of God, what mercy and where, where mercy and righteousness meet together is ramped up at this point in Matthew's gospel. And it's about to reach its climax on the cross. Love and righteousness. Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem to be arrested, crucified. He knows it. And he's been repeatedly telling his disciples that that is exactly what's about to take place. He's been telling them, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But they either do not understand what he's telling them or they refuse to accept it. Either way, only Jesus fully understands and he is fixed on accomplishing the Father's will. Nothing's going to prevent him from getting there. This, this last journey to Jerusalem began in chapter 19 of Matthew. And it says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That's where his, his last journey begins. This region beyond the Jordan was the region of Perea. Not, not technically a part of Judea, but often referred that way uh, at the time, because it was part of the territory that was controlled by Herod the Great. So he left Galilee for the last time, crossed over the Jordan, and traveled through Perea on his way to Jerusalem, a very common path for the Jews as they traveled from Galilee to, to Jerusalem. The reason being is, is if you saw a map of, of Israel at the time of Jesus, you had Galilee, the northernmost region of, of, of Israel. You had right below that Samaria. It was the people that the religious Jews hated the most and wanted nothing to do with. They didn't even walk on their soil. And then below that was Judea, where Ju Jerusalem resided. So they would cross over the Jordan River into Perea. They would travel just east of the Jordan. They would come back over north of the, of the Dead Sea, and they would travel to Jerusalem that way and avoid Samaria altogether. Now, you'll see in the Gospels earlier, uh, earlier on that Jesus actually goes to Samaria. He walks right in there. But in this occasion, on his way to Jerusalem, he follows the common path that everyone else follows. And today's passage says that a great crowd followed him. There was really a large crowd following Jesus as he left Galilee, according to chapter 19, verse 2. But this was also Passover time. We've got to keep that in mind. There was already a ton of people traveling this path on their way to Jerusalem. But I would imagine the interest in, in Jesus was swelling also the closer he got to Jerusalem and leading right up to the triumphal entry. So there was just this massive interest in him. So following the common road through Perea, one would eventually cross over the Jordan, go through Jericho, go through Bethany, over the Mount of Olives, and eventually approach the east entry of Jerusalem. And it's while he's traveling through Jericho that Jesus encounters these two blind men. Luke's gospel also includes Jesus' encounter uh, with Zacchaeus, if you remember that one, here in, here in Jericho, this same setting. But the other Gospels, including Matthew, omit that episode altogether. 
But we need to address an apparent contradiction between the three synoptic gospels regarding this blind man. Synoptic, it, it's simply a term that means same. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in terms of their content, they are very similar. Their content and their order, everything looks very similar. John is completely different. Synoptic simply is a term that is used to identify those three Gospels that are very similar to each other and identify them separately from the Gospel of John. But in this case, there seems to be a contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction between the three Gospels because it's important to mention it here. I mean... Unbelievers love to find contradictions and say, ah, there you go, the scriptures are all just a a big hoax. So it's important that we address things like this. But there's generally a simple explanation for what appears to be a contradiction. So here's the problem. Our passage in Matthew says that there is two blind men sitting by the roadside. But in Luke 18, in the parallel passage, Luke says that a blind man was on the side of the road. Mark follows Luke. In Mark chapter 10, it says, he even gives the name of the blind man. He says it's Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. So what's going on here? Is this a contradiction? Were there two beggars, or was there just one, or was there maybe three or more? Why is there a contradiction here? But to make matters even worse, Matthew says Jesus came across these men as he went out of Jericho, But both Mark and Luke say that they encountered a blind man as they came to or drew near to Jericho. So what do we believe here? Was Jesus coming upon the city or was he leaving the city? And was there one blind man or was there more than one blind man? First, let's deal with the location issue. There's at least one possible answer to this. For me... It's really an easy explanation when you realize that there was more than one Jericho at the time. After crossing back over the Jordan, a person would come upon the original city of Jericho. It was mostly uh, in ruins at the time, but it was also partly inhabited. There were people that still lived around that site. Traveling on a little further, you would come to the new city of Jericho. It was about a mile away, and it was a city that was built around the time of Herod, and the same road traveled through both cities. So it's most likely in my mind that this narrative took place somewhere in between the old and the new. Jesus was walking out of old Jericho and drawing near to new Jericho. It's a possible explanation. But what about the discrepancy in the number of beggars? One might answer... How would would one maybe answer to this inconsistency? Well, if there's one blind beggar, could there have been more than one? (laughs) I mean, it just makes sense. What makes the most sense here is that there were at least two beggars on the side of the road, and one was more forthcoming or outspoken, kind of the leader of the two. There, there, There were at least two beggars, but Bartimaeus was doing most, if not all, of the talking. While Luke and Mark focus on the prominent individual to fit the purpose of their books, Mark even identifies him as Bartimaeus, 
Matthew saw fit to include both individuals for some reason. And while Luke and Mark focus on the prominent individual to fit the purpose, there's no reason to, to think that there's some contradiction here somehow. There's no need to believe that this is inconsistent. There's so, certainly no need to lose confidence in the scriptures or in its accuracy or its truth. But look at the faith of these two blind men. Matthew says, behold, look, pay attention, be astonished. There were two blind men sitting on the, by the road, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It seems that with the loss of a main sense, like eyesight, one of your other senses usually is enhanced or becomes more focused upon. These guys couldn't see anything. They couldn't see what was going around them and know what was going on. But they had a keen sense of hearing since they relied on it to survive. No one told them, Jesus is passing by, you guys, pay attention. In fact, the crowd probably didn't even really want them around. They saw them as a nuisance. They were a nothing in society, one of the lowest people in the culture. Everybody would be better off if they were, you know, not even seen, let alone heard. These guys are just, you know, they can go away. Or maybe they were simply regarded as a hindrance to Jesus' work, his important work. That was the response of the apostles. Do you remember that? When people were bringing children to Jesus, don't bother him. Don't you understand this is Jesus and he has important things to do? Get the kids out of here. These blind men knew exactly what was going on, though, and who it was that was passing by. They could sense it. And the attempts of the crowd to silence these guys had the opposite effect. Because they cried out even louder, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Folks, let it be understood that real faith will not be squashed. No matter what comes against it, genuine faith will always burst forth and no opposition is going to stop it. Or like I like to say, wild horses can't hold you back. And one of the common threads you'll see throughout the gospel as well, Matthew's gospel, is the blind who could see Jesus and many who could see were actually blind. These blind men could see who Jesus was and knew he was their only hope. And that is partly demonstrated in how they addressed him, calling him son of David. Why? What is, what is significant about the title son of David? Why is that significant? Well, the son of David is a messianic title that finds its roots in the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7 God told David through the prophet Nathan, quote, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the Davidic covenant. And it was established that the Messiah would indeed be the descendant of David, or, quote, the son of David. That was the expectation. These blind beggars may also have known other passages about the Messiah, like that spoken of by Isaiah in chapter 35 of Isaiah. It said, when the Messiah appears, quote, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then listen to what it says next. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap with a, like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Messiah is coming. Son of David. He will right every wrong. He will subject all things he will bring deliverance. He will bring righteousness. And he will give sight to the blind. I think these men knew who this was that was passing by. And in faith, not, not only proclaimed their belief in his identity as son of David, but as Lord of all. That's what their heart was proclaiming. The title of son of David is a crucial part of Matthew's gospel. It's one of his main points. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. It's the title that's given. Um, in fact, it starts. His gospel starts with that. This is his point. Chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Later, two men are following Jesus in chapter 9, crying out the same thing. Have mercy on us, son of David. The crowds in chapter 12 are amazed at Jesus' miracles, and they ask, can this be the son of David? In chapter 15, a Canaanite woman cries out to him, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And in the very next chapter, after this one that we're doing today, the crowds will be shouting out triumphantly, Hosanna to the son of David. These two blind men knew who it was that was passing by because they were blind, but they could see. But that was not the case with the religious leaders at the time, those that thought they were good in themselves. They thought they knew all, and they were personally righteous because they had made up rules for themselves to follow. The Pharisees had sight they could see with their physical eyes, but their hearts could not see who Jesus was. And they didn't want to see because of their self-worshipping pride. Jesus calls them out for their spiritual blindness more than once in Matthew's gospel. In his 
description of the Pharisees in chapter 15, Jesus says, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. Later in chapter 23, Jesus will call down many woes on the Pharisees coming up. In chapter 23, verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, you blind fools. Verse 19, you blind men. Verse 24, you blind guides. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee. Jesus pulls no punches. He is very direct with these religious hypocrites. We see a lot of sinful behavior in our world, but the most wicked act that man can perform is his, his presumption that he possesses goodness and righteousness in his character before God. That he, he, he possesses the righteous character of God and should be appreciated by God. Jesus Christ is the only necessary thing, and any person who does not recognize their desperate need for Jesus in order to gain righteousness, that this son of God, this son of David, and has never pleaded with him for forgiveness and healing for their spiritually dead state, you're blind and without hope, even if you can see physically. But look at, look at how Jesus responds to those who cry out to him. Verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called them. Wow. I think that is so awesome. He stopped. He, will, he was willing to pause his march toward his destiny to care for these two nobodies. Do you understand that Jesus is on a serious mission here? He is marching towards Jerusalem to fulfill the will of the Father by giving himself up? And he is surrounded by crowds of people that all want his attention, including the, his closest disciples. But when these two nothing burgers, these two blind beggars, they call out to him, he stops. Not only does he stop, but he responds to their call for help by calling back to them. No rabbi or religious leader does this. They don't show compassion to a beggar particularly a rabbi who thinks he's on a mission for God, they're not going to stop and pay attention to some blind men on the side of the road. They're just a nuisance. Their business was far too important to waste time on people like that. In fact, if you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, it demonstrated that these religious types would not even stop to care for another Pharisee if he was in trouble. They were so self-focused. Can you imagine the people around Jesus thinking, what is he doing? Why is he wasting time with these guys? <clears throat> Come on, Jesus. Don't bother with these guys. But Jesus responds to even the lowest individuals when they call to him in desperation. Throughout this gospel, Matthew shows that Jesus is the revelation of God's compassionate heart towards the human dilemma. This is true humility. The Son of God placing value on the lowest individuals 
and considering them more important than himself. And I love this. Jesus says to these guys, what do you want me to do for you? I think that's really fascinating. Jesus didn't have any idea what they might want. And if you believe that, I have oceanfront property in North Idaho I'd like to sell you. Not only did Jesus know what, this, what these men wanted, I think everybody could guess that. What do you think these blind guys might have wanted? They said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Of course that's what they wanted. And of course Jesus knew that's what they wanted. So why did Jesus ask him the question? Why do you, why do you say, what do you want? I, I truly believe that for the same reason God desires us to pray and to petition him. It is an expression of our faith, of our dependence, and even an expression of our worship towards him that we turn to him in dependence. Why, why would they call out, Son of David and Lord, and why would they ask to have something impossible done for them like this, unless they believed that this person was truly the Messiah and could accomplish it. Jesus makes them ask for it, and it provides an expression of faith and dependence and worship. And now look at how Jesus responds in verse 34. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. In pity, or as another translation puts it, and I like this, moved with compassion. The word literally means, the, the Greek term, it literally means to share in their suffering, to share in their pain. It, it, the word speaks of a deep emotion. It literally speaks of being moved in your inner parts, your, your bowels. It means to be just emotionally moved to be filled with tenderness or great affection toward another. In a nutshell, if you had to boil it down, it means he cared for them, was moved with compassion, and shared their pain. <clears throat> this response is so opposite fallen man. It really comes down to it. Mankind looks out for number one first. And if it's not too inconvenient, it might help somebody else. In fact, even the redeemed of God are often too busy to recognize the real spiritual need of people around us. What fallen humanity usually wants is for everyone to focus on them. It may not appear so on the surface, but it's true of every person, even all of us in this room. We struggle with that. At a heart level, mankind worships themselves while the one true God took on human flesh and considered sinful humans more important than himself to the glory of God the Father. And look what it says in verse 34. Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. I love this. He touches them. This is another theme you see throughout Matthew's gospel, that Jesus touches people. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, Jesus stretched out and touched a leper. 
saying, I am willing, be cleansed. No one ever touches a leper. Jesus did. Chapter 8, verse 15, he touched the hand of Peter's mother-in-law and the fever left her. Chapter 9, verse 20, a woman who suffered with bleeding touched the fringe of his garment and was healed. Verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 29, he touched the eyes of two blind men and they were healed. In chapter 17, people were just reaching out and touching him and being healed. Touching is a way of intimate connection with another. And it can be a response of compassion and affection. And these men were healed immediately through a touch and a command. Mark in his gospel uses the word immediately a lot. Over and over. He constantly uses it in his gospel. That's why the gospel of Mark is often referred to as the gospel of action. He constantly says, and immediately he did this, and immediately he did this, and immediately he did that. Matthew doesn't use the word nearly as often as Mark does. So when he uses the word immediately, he really means immediately. Bam! The guy could see. This healing was instantaneous, unavoidable, undeniable. One moment, he's blind. The next instant, he could see everything perfectly. What astonishing power and what amazing compassion. And look at the response of the two men. It says they followed him. Mark says they followed Jesus on the way. That's that's really a key term. It, It means they were now disciples of Jesus. They were believers in Jesus Christ, and they wanted to follow him. Where Jesus went, they wanted to go. And we see this many times in the Gospels, individuals who are not only healed physically, but many who are healed spiritually as well. And afterwards, they want to follow Jesus. They want to be with him, learn from him. Luke adds this. He says uh, that they were glorifying God, and all the people that saw it gave praise to God. And all of this is fitting. It's what should be. Following Jesus, glorifying God, and causing others to glorify God. This is the image of faith. As I I start to wind down here, this is such a a simple narrative. A, A person can easily read right over it and miss the beauty of the Savior's love displayed here. He is our example. He is the one that the church should be intimid- uh, 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 that the church should be imitating. We should be those who want to follow after him and, and exemplify who he is, to learn from him. We, as the children of God, are called to glorify the Son of God by loving as He loved. I started out reading Philippians 2 regarding the humility of Christ. But Paul's point in that passage was that Christ was to be our example of humility, what we are to follow. Paul says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, 
Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing, not most things, not some things, nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We are redeemed. We've been given a new heart. We have the Spirit of God, and we have the results of that are intended to bring glory to Christ. That's what should be happening because of that. And the most prominent way we do this is in favoring one another above ourselves, genuinely caring for each other's spiritual and physical welfare. Above ourselves. Not being impatient, not taking offense, not considering ourselves more important. It is God's will that his body be devoted to one another in love. And I don't just mean Sunday. But even when we are dealing with unbelievers, consider this story where other sinful humans were unwilling to love these men in the same way that the King of Glory loved them. I mean, what I'm saying is, is as we're going down the road, we're going to be around sinful human beings that need to be shown the love of Christ. Like we said earlier, it is not too far for a sinful human to lower themselves for another, but for Christ, it was, it was an infinite drop. We can't even measure that. How do we consider it? And if our Lord has done this, why, why would we not do that? We must not lose opportunities to patiently consider others where they are and love them and encourage them toward Christ and setting their heart and their vision on Christ. But think about this one. Jesus Christ is the source, the origination of compassionate love. It doesn't start with us. We didn't create this. No human being said, ah, I'll show you what love is. No, God had to show us in the person of Christ. I mentioned earlier that Jesus is the full revelation of compassion. We, we merely reflect the glory of God because his glory does not originate with us. God is compassion. God is love. These wonderful attributes originated in our creator, not in the created. Any evidence of compassion and faith that we display is because of the gracious work of salvation that has taken place within us by his sovereign hand. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 4. And I'm going to read this from the NASB because I think it puts it better. He says, For who considers you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast if you, as if you had not received it? What is our tendency when we serve other people? What is the tendency when we sacrificially do things for others. We expect others to recognize our kindness. And, and when they don't, we get really put out. Don't they care that I've given so much? Well, don't they appreciate me? 
We also find it easy to get offended when wronged in some way. But if we belong to Christ and love him, we will want to do as he did, loving each other with a completely self-sacrificing love. If you do not desire to love each other with a patient and understanding way, you better check yourself. Check your heart. Because that is diametrically opposed to the manner of Christ. It's not fitting. You can't say you love God and not, at the same time, love your brother. John's, uh, John, his first epistle, is very clear about that. But one last word regarding the compassion of Jesus. If you're here today and you are far from God, whether you have never turned to him in faith or you've been running, for him from, running from him for a long time, if you are agonizing in the midst of your sin and your consequences, I beg you to cry out to him. I beg you to cry out to him. You need to cry out to Jesus just as these two blind beggars did on that day. No matter how low you are or how wretched your sin, Jesus will hear the cries of your heart and only he can heal you from your guilt and your hopelessness. Only he can do that. And there is no one else who possesses absolutely perfect loving compassion to stop and answer your cries. If you cry out to him in faith, confess your sin and your guilt to him, and you plead with him for forgiveness in life, he will stop and open your blind, spiritually blind eyes. No one can love you like Jesus, and no one else can bring you true spiritual life. But I also mentioned in the beginning today that I would reflect for a moment on Father's Day. So here you go. <laughs> I take, I take so much joy and I celebrate faithful fathers. I'm so thankful for the faithful fathers that are in this room and you, you that are represented today. But the, the glory of Christ's humility and love in this passage is also a challenge for us today who are husbands and fathers by God's provident design. We are God's means of loving grace towards our families. Do you, do you understand that? May today be a day of remembrance for you that we are responsible to lead our families in humble love, paying attention to genuine needs and caring for individuals of our own household, above our own interests. It's easy for our hearts to be distracted, especially as men. We compartmentalize. I've got this list of tasks I need to do. But we need to be patiently bearing with our household in faithfulness and humble service to them, making ourselves a representation of Christ in our households. Amen. So, Father, we thank you so much for our Redeemer, the glories of his humility and his love. Thank you, Father, for the life that you've brought us because of his great acts. Lord, help us to walk as he walked, to follow his example to bring him glory. Lord, what tremendous life and love you have poured into us that we are possessors of every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
that we are literally united together with our creator in a loving unity that can never be broken. What loving favor and what incredible sacrifice to gain that for us. Lord, help us to follow that same attitude that we see in our Redeemer, that he might be glorified in us as he rightly deserves to be. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.